The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Bring in show music, please. Today on Squawk Pod, Fed Chair Jay Powell says the central bank will not be raising rates, signaling a March cut is also off the table, sending jitters through the market. It really felt like the markets were at a point where it was looking for an excuse to sell off, and this may have been one of them. In a fiery Senate hearing, CEOs from the top social media companies were grilled on how to protect kids online. Former Facebook engineer turned whistleblower Arturo Bayar. They have the infrastructure, they have the know-how, but they need to be investing it in things that help teens. Plus, pollster and political strategist Frank Luntz on the 2024 presidential race and why many Biden voters are looking for a change. The weakest candidate against Donald Trump is Joe Biden. Any other Democrat would run further ahead. Any other Democrat would be beating Donald Trump right now. I'm CNBC producer Zach Valisi. It's Thursday, February 1st. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Andrew by in three, two, one. Cue Andrew. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Melissa Lee and Mike Santoli. Becky and Joe are out, but we've got a good group hanging in together. Great to are. be here. Okay, we got a lot to do. Markets experienced a late-day drop yesterday as Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell suggested that a March rate cut was unlikely. Based on the meeting today, I would tell you that I don't think it's likely that the committee will reach a level of confidence by the time of the March meeting to identify March as the time to do that. But that's, that's to be seen. The Dow fell by more than 300 points, ending its four-day winning streak. The Federal Reserve's policy statement indicated they were ruling out more rate hikes, but remained open to potential cuts, pending greater confidence in inflation aligning with their target. Here's Mike Santoli. What was interesting yesterday is those comments about, you know, kind of pushing people away from a March rate cut by Powell came in the context of otherwise pretty dovish commentary. He was saying, we don't need right. the data to get better. It just has to stay good. We right. just need a little more time. It, stri- it really did sound like not all the committees on board with March. Yes. They have a higher burden of proof on inflation. They want to see it come down more. But the real takeaway was he sees the risks as balanced mm-hmm. between continued higher inflation and weaker growth. But the risks for both, not very high. So it's, it's one of those things where market took another leg down about 1% on a day when big tech was selling off anyway. The community bank uh, right. news yesterday was not great. It, it really felt like the markets were at a point where it was looking for an excuse to sell off. And totally. this may have been one of them. It, I don't think the Fed said anything that the markets didn't know or was coming to grips of. I, th- I thought what was also interesting was that in the wake of the Fed, we saw the odds. We knew March was already declining yeah. in, in odds. So the next meeting for May, 100%. But they're also pricing in 50 basis point cuts, which seem, I don't know, it seems at this point very unrealistic. But um, so they didn't take any rate cuts off the table for the year. They just condensed them into the back of the year. There has been a line of thinking that if they want it to be gradual and orderly, Mm -hmm. then it should be sooner. 
I mean, yes. I, I'm not saying right. that's necessarily the case, but that has been one line of thinking. It's like, look, look, long-term yields went down a lot yesterday, right? You're talking about 394.5 on the 10-year. That's the market saying the longer they wait, the greater chance they wait too long and there's a mistake and the economy really does have a uh, Oh, but I think weakness. there's another thing we're not talking about, which is there's a view that if you wait too long, you can't, you can't lower the rate, even if you wanted to. Meaning Why? that there's going to be such a a strange sort of uh, political pressure, even, now, even though but I know the, election, the Fed, yes, the even though, the, yes, that, you, that if you're going to lower rates, you need to do it early enough in the ball game that you're not close enough to what's happening in the fall. That is yeah. a, a view, not that it gets discussed, it doesn't get discussed in the room. The question is whether it's a little birdie in the back of your head saying, okay, you know what, I don't want to be told. Well, that, they should cut very soon. Well, they should, well, they should no, and, and, and so, the so there is, I, I know a whole bunch of, of very famous hedge fund managers who we all know who have a view that if you don't start sure. yeah. moving early, you will never move right. because you, you will feel like you're trapped and you can't. I mean. Goldman Sachs was on a March cut, and they went to May, June, July, September. Okay, that gives you four, a right. full percentage point of cuts. You're clear of the election, then you can wait to December. I mean, that seems to be. And November you know, is after the election. Right. That meeting. Exactly. So you could put one in there as well. But the New York Community Bank Corp, that definitely factored into yesterday's session. Yeah. And it may have factored into the Fed statement in terms of their language surrounding the banking system being sound and resilient. That got removed. So that yeah. definitely right. got noticed in the wake of this. So um, that's that's another something to Meanwhile, watch. Meanwhile, Microsoft's indicated up a percent this morning. So maybe right. people are like, hey, look, back to the old playbook and or we'll maybe see what works. flight to safety. Yeah. Quote, sure unquote, safety. <laughs> All right. Earlier in the day, the Capitol Hill drama centered around social media. I want to show you some of this. The CEOs of top social media platforms, including Meta X, Snapchat, TikTok, and Discord, all testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee on whether their platforms harm kids. The hearing then took a dramatic, a truly dramatic turn when CEO Mark Zuckerberg was asked by Missouri Senator Josh Hawley to apologize to family members in the audience who say their children suffered or died due to content on Meta platforms. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? I, I, I'm sorry the things that your families have, have suffered. And this is why we invested so much and are going to continue doing extremely efforts to, uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. It's unclear if any regulation or of social media will be produced by lawmakers. We've been talking about this now for more than a decade. Uh, we're going to talk later in the show to a whistleblower from Facebook about the hearings and Zuckerberg's apology. It'll be interesting to see if this gets any mention on the on a conference call. Yep. Probably not, is my guess. Yeah, it's you wouldn't think so. It's an issue that investors so. just, you know, it, they live with but never believe anything will come of this. Right. Yeah, and one of the takeaways, too, is, I mean, these CEOs, they all, in one way or another, say, we don't want this content on here. This is not, right. we don't get paid for it. Nobody exactly. wants to advertise against it. But it does leave the impression that they are just ungovernable platforms, right? If they don't want it, nobody right. wants it, and they seem to can't corral it. They right. can't seem and to corral it. And they have it. resources devoted to getting rid of this to content, try and yet yeah. it's still not quite successful. Right. So what does it tell you? And then when you add AI to the whole mix, what kind of brew do you have then? I think it's almost impossible. I, the truth is, I do think it's an impossible task. I know that's an that's yeah. unsatisfying thing to say, but I think the truth is we all want certain things to happen, and it's unclear whether you can actually make them happen the way you'd want them to, right. if you're going to have a real-time service. 
If you decided you're not having a real-time service, you could have a whole other thing. Right. With a, I've always a day wondered, delay or something like that? <laughs> I don't know if you need a day delay, but I've always wondered if you ran the whole thing at an hour or two delay, I actually think you probably could get ahead of it. But I don't know if that's what people want. People want real-time. They want... And, and it's funny, if you want transparency on certain things, you'd say real-time matters. Or if so, you don't want the algorithm to be that good, if you change right. it, right? And Maybe. it's not as effective, but you don't sell as much advertising. I mean, there's right. so many different aspects to the story here. Let's get to the world of Elon Musk now. He says Tesla will hold a shareholder vote to move the company's incorporation from Delaware to Texas. The move coming after a Delaware judge voided Musk's $56 billion pay package from 2018, calling it excessive and negotiated by a board who seemed beholden to him. Musk polling his followers on X, asking their opinion. More than 87% of the 1.1 million votes were in favor of that move to Texas. Musk has a large interest in the Lone Star State. Tesla's corporate headquarters and Gigafactory are in Texas. And SpaceX and the Boring Company also have operations there. Um, I don't know if it's the, the size of the package is shocking, but it's the, the board being beholden. That seem to me to be the real issue. So can I, I just want to take a whole step back. I actually wrote about this on, on, on X last night. Mm -hmm. I covered this and broke the news when this first compensation plan was put together. And I remember talking to Elon Musk on the phone about it and going through it. And at, for the first time I looked at it, I was in shock. And I was in shock not, by the way, because of, the, the, of how much money he, was, he stood to make. That's not what I was in shock about. I was in shock that he had put his entire comp plan at risk at a level that seemed, especially among some of the sort of outer tranches of the, of the, of the package, mm -hmm. just it, it seemed an impossible task. Right. And most people at that time thought that there was no way right. in a million years that he was going to hit these numbers. And so we all talk about pay for, pay for performance. I critique comp packages like crazy because no, in most cases, there is no market for these, for these deals. And in most cases, the CEOs are not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. This was actually a very different time. And people forget, at that time, he had already told the public. He had already hinted he might step down as CEO. He was already getting very interested in SpaceX. He had already become... Uh, remarkably wealthy, not this wealthy at all, but he was wealthy. People, one of the great conundrums of comp for boards is if you have a CEO on your board who is independently wealthy, what does it take to keep them? The, the quote, market forces are actually quite different. So yes, you could say that this package seems crazy. And by the way, in some ways it was. But at the same time, the idea that it worked unto itself should be uh, uh, both a surprise and a surprise on the upside. And, I'm, and then from a sort of capitalistic, and we can, people can debate whether we should have a capitalistic society or not, but to the extent we do, I'm not sure that this is, um, I, I, I just, I, I don't really understand this judge. I do understand I, the beholden the idea. Beholden. But I here's think that the, if the board were different, but they you, could have voted this pay package and there wouldn't be a dispute because really, in. In reality, if a board is independent and the shareholders voted for the board and the board is voting for the pay package, they're... That's... Right, but the shareholders voted for it, too. I mean, let's, yeah. let's, let's yeah. not forget what happened here. Yeah. Like, let's, but let's no, not true. pretend... That... The board negotiated it. Yes, but the other piece of this is that, again, and this goes to the very unique role or place that Elon Musk had inside Tesla, inside, in society, which was 
unlike most CEOs, he actually could write his own ticket. He could say to you, if you don't pay me this, I don't want to do this. Most CEOs can't do that. They need the money. They want the money. Not, there's not some other job for them to take. This guy's got five other jobs to take because he already has five other companies. And again, I'm not telling you this is not a crazy number. The, the hilarious part to me about this entire scenario is had he not hit those numbers and got, an, an issue. And got it nothing, not it would not right. be an issue. No, and that's not true. It would not be an issue. And then if he had gone back to the board and said, well, actually, I want you to pay yeah. me something, uh, then people would be screaming about that. Yep. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, the former Facebook engineer turned whistleblower, Arturo Bayar, on protecting kids online. Each of the platforms has things to work on, but I think Meta, because they have the greatest user base and infrastructure, has the greatest responsibility. As social media CEOs from Meta's Mark Zuckerberg to X's Linda Yaccarino answered questions from senators yesterday, he has suggestions on how to make these platforms safer. You have to separate out the right to say something from it being recommended to you, and that part is really broken right now. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod with Andrew Ross Sorkin, Melissa Lee, and Mike Santoli. This meeting of the Senate Judiciary Committee will come to order. CEOs from the largest social media companies testified yesterday on Capitol Hill, taking tough questions from lawmakers on what they're doing to protect kids online. Today, the Senate Judiciary Committee will continue its work on an issue on the mind of most American families how to keep our kids safe from sexual exploitation and harm in the internet age. The hearing featured testimony from Meta's Mark Zuckerberg, TikTok's So Zi Shu, Snap's Evan Spiegel, Discord's Jason Citron, and X's Linda Yaccarino, and is the ongoing effort by lawmakers to enact new federal safeguards against online child sexual abuse material. This issue has been a struggle for leaders both in Silicon Valley and Washington. And tech companies are under increasing political pressure to clamp down on this kind of inappropriate content. At the hearing, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg faced the toughest questioning, at one point turning around to apologize to parents in the chamber. Our next guest has been a vocal advocate of more guardrails on social media as a former Facebook engineer turned whistleblower. Here's Andrew. Joining us right now is one of the whistleblowers who tried to flag child safety issues while working for Mark Zuckerberg. Arturo Behar, he's a former Facebook engineering director and former consultant to Instagram. Good morning to you. What did you think when Mark Zuckerberg turned around uh, to those families and made that uh, statement to them? 
It's the least that he could do. Uh, he begins the hearing talking about how there is no proof about the impact that social media has on people, which I can't imagine how disrespectful that was to everybody sitting behind him. All of those parents who have lost children, their loss was preventable, and Mark has the capacity to make that better, and that's what he should be doing. So, Tara, one of the things we've been batting around this table for a long time, uh, and again this morning, is how, in fact, not necessarily that you would regulate social media, though we could talk about that as well, but to the extent that Mark Zuckerberg and others say, look, we're investing an enormous amount in trying to prevent these things from happening. Are they? Do you believe that they're not, that, that, this is even, that there's no effort being made? It appears that they're spending millions, if not billions of dollars, trying to, trying to prevent this and are unable. Is it structural to how Facebook is set up? We had talked about, could you put the whole thing on a delay? If you put the whole service on an hour-long delay, could you catch these things in a way you can't if it's all in real time? What, what would you ultimately suggest? So they're investing, but they're investing in the wrong thing. They're investing on what they call prevalence, which is a fraction of a percent of what people experience. What they could invest in and what Nick Clegg asked them to invest in in the knowledge of issues with addiction, bullying and harassment, and self-harm are sort of tools that help people with those issues when they face them. So in the case of bullying and harassment, what you have to build is something that makes a teen feel heard when they ask for help. Instead, um, as part of the data that came out with me, they, when a teen asks for help, half of them don't feel any support from Instagram whatsoever. And when you can do this through product changes that acknowledge the issue that you're experiencing, it's not about the bull, it's not about taking the content down. Um, I mean, there's for each one of these categories, self-harm, child endangerment, there are things that they could do that they have the infrastructure to do. But if they're only reporting on prevalence, they're not talking about the harm that people experience. I believe if with their quarterly earnings, they would have to report on the number of teens experiencing bullying, unwanted advances, these areas, then they would be doing the work in the correct area, which is reducing Tarallo, harm as you, experienced you, by teens. You've been in, you're, you're an insider, or a former insider, if you will. You understand, uh, I think, how Mark and others think about these issues. Uh, to the extent that, that you feel like you were not heard, but I think you were heard in that, obviously, he, he, he heard your words. Why do you think they're not doing this? Is it, is it a cost issue or something else? Is, is it a philosophical question? I think it might be a philosophical question for him because this is not a cost issue. They have the infrastructure, they have the know-how, but they need to be investing it in things that help teens. Like I've asked for a button for the unwanted advances that my daughter received. It's very easy to build. They haven't done it. But, but I guess that's what I'm trying to understand. Why do you think they haven't? And do you believe that regulators, you're, you're meeting with lots of them in Washington, um, plan to actually do something? We've talked about, uh, or I should say policymakers have talked about doing something for a very long time, but for whatever reason, have never got there. Yeah, as to the why, I mean, the best thing I can say about that is what we saw yesterday is Mark being indifferent to the harms that were put in front of him. He's saying we're doing enough, when clearly they're not, and they have the capacity to do so. And I do believe that regulators have the capacity to change this if they were to compel transparency, duty of care. The things that regulators talk about would make a difference as the companies are not doing this on their own. So what does that actually look like, though? And, and, and how do you think that Meta compares to the likes of TikTok, or the likes of X, or the likes of Discord, or others? 
So in terms of how Meta compares, there was a question of child endangerment on like sexualized content yesterday. The Wall Street Journal published a story about that, and I go in regularly to test. And last week, you go into Reels, and there's an easy way to get back-to-back -back recommendations of accounts of seven to eight-year-olds, one of which did a video to a sexual song that had 150,000 views, right? And, and so Instagram, in particular, has a huge problem with under 10-year-olds being there in a way that incentivizes the most awful things. And that's not something that happens on TikTok. Each of the platforms has things to work on, but I think Meta, because they have the greatest user base and infrastructure, has the greatest responsibility. What did you make, and I'm curious how you think about this, there, there's issues about self-harm with kids, and then there was issues about speech, free speech, good speech, bad speech. I don't know if you saw the president of TikTok saying that he believed there was no, what he called, pro-Hamas um, videos or, or, or other things running on TikTok. A lot of people uh, put a spotlight on that and said, what are you talking about? And then there became a debate about what it meant to be, quote, unquote, pro-Hamas. How do you think about those issues? So I think people should be able to post anything that the platform allows them to, but that doesn't mean that it should be recommended to kids. And the thing that we don't have today that we should have is real control against what gets recommended to us. Imagine a product that when a kid goes in, it says, you know, this feed is for you, and it's gonna be as easy for you to like something as it is to tell us that it's not for you and why. And you know, all of us should have that. It should be able to say, you know, I don't wanna see that, why? Because to me, it's racist or it's just not the kinds of things I want to see. Without that, like, the, we don't have any agency against misinformation. I mean, all these kinds of awful content that is getting put online that they are recommending. And you have to separate out the right to say something from it being recommended to you. And that part is really broken right now. Tara, I want to thank you uh, for joining us this morning. I'm sure we'll talk more about this with you, hopefully, in the future. Thanks again. Thank you for the time. Next on Squawk Pod, pollster and political strategist Frank Luntz discusses a survey he conducted of previous Biden voters and why they're now looking for a change. If you give them a third party, a third option, they go to anywhere but Joe Biden. And he, this is key. And that polling that you've been running, make no mistake, young voters at this point have left the current president because they don't think he has the energy. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ostorkin along with Melissa Lee and Mike Santoli. Joe and Becky are off today, but we got a lot going on. President Biden's approval rating dropping to 38% in January. Many Americans unhappy with his job performance going into the next election. But there's a bigger question. Are supporters in 2020 changing sides? Joe is right now ahead of that uh, election. Frank Luntz, FIL Inc., holster and political strategist. Good morning to you, Frank. Help us understand what's happening here. I, I, I think what you're getting at with, with, with particularly this focus group is just what might be described as an enthusiasm gap, but that could become a, a demonstrable problem for the president. 
What did these people who were not raising their hands say to you? Well, it was specifically a group of ex-Biden voters, and that was only to prove to viewers that uh, we had the 19 people who had voted for him and aren't. Number one, it's not just about inflation. It's now about immigration and all the consequences of what's happening at the border. They're angry about it and they're nervous about it. Number two, they do not hate Joe Biden. There's no negativity. It's more like disappointments, the number one word that they use to describe him. And number three, there's no embracement of Donald Trump, but a feeling that Joe Biden is just too old. They are not voting about the past. They are voting about the future. And they're questioning whether or not President Biden has a plan, has, has the action, has the right. emotion and passion to carry the country forward. So, Frank, it's a warning. The, the thing that I can't understand or tell from, from, from that focus group, and maybe you can describe it, is those folks who are disenchanted with the president or, or disillusioned or, or don't have the enthusiasm that they might have had for him before. When the question gets asked, are you voting for Trump, you're saying they're not. Are they, effect, are they effectively saying, okay, then I'm going to go, I'm not going to vote at all? Is that, and how, what happens there? So these people, when you ask them that specific Trump question, 11 of them return to Joe Biden. So the point that you raised is a good one. If it's Donald Trump as the opponent, which it will be, then many of those people return. But if you give them a third party, a third option, or even throw in uh, Bobby Kennedy, they go to anywhere but Joe Biden. And he, this is key. In that polling that you've been running, African-Americans under age 40, male African-Americans are moving further and further towards Donald Trump, not the Republican Party, but towards Trump. The Latino vote, the most critical vote in America, roughly 20 percent of the population, for the first time, polling now has them supporting Donald Trump. Make no mistake, young voters at this point have left the current president because they don't think he has the energy. So this helps explain why they're moving away. We went through this in 2016. We watched Hillary Clinton zoom in the polls early on and then collapse at the end. So this is no guarantee of what happens in October and November. But Andrew, make no mistake, Joe Biden is the weakest incumbent in America since Jimmy Carter in 1980. And don't forget, on the Thursday before the election, Carter was dead even with Ronald Reagan. After their one debate, Reagan beat Jimmy Carter by nine points. This is a look into the future. Frank, um, I don't know that this gets much comment, but this must be the first election, assuming it is Trump versus Biden, where um, either winner would be a lame duck immediately. In other words, there's no possibility of, of, of a further term beyond that. Does that come into it at all? I mean, it just seems like it's another uh, kind of short-term thing. It doesn't really leave room for, you know, we're going to have a new uh, grand eight-year strategy, anything like that. It really just seems like, you know, moving the ball ahead a very short distance. Well, they're more focused on both candidates being of advanced age. Now, Donald Trump does not suffer from the same uh, passion deficit of Joe Biden. But the real issue for the voter is... What will happen in year two, year three, year four? They're not looking eight years ahead. They're simply looking four years ahead. And they want a plan of action. And frankly, they're not, they're questioning Donald Trump's plan of action, but they believe that Joe Biden has none. And to return those voters that he needs so desperately, he's got to show energy, enthusiasm. 
some details about what he's going to do, not what he's done. This election will be about the next four years, not the past four years. So, Frank, is there a third party candidate that could emerge that will uh, attract not only the people who are dissatisfied with Biden, but also those who are dissatisfied with Trump? Or is a third party candidate simply going to draw the votes away from one and make the other win? The third, that is the question that people are asking right now. And the third party candidate, I believe, according to our polling, starts with 20 percent. That's the number that Ross Perot ended with in 1992, the most successful third party candidate since Teddy Roosevelt in 1912. The issue is, can they go from that 20 percent to be truly competitive? There is nothing that shows a ceiling right now. But let's face it, we've got 250 years of third party candidates not doing well. So, Frank, here's the, the, the thing that I can't figure out is, are you suggesting and you've been associated as being um, considered a, 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 a and people have described you as a Republican pollster. I don't know if you, you take issue with that or not. But nonetheless, do you look at this and say to yourself that the Biden administration is supposed to look at this and say that they're going to stand down and put somebody else in their, that place? That does not seem to be realistic. They have to pray and hope that, that, that Trump is, is the candidate, which you're saying that's going to be the case. And then it's some kind of strange game of chicken, which it seems to be. I mean, what, what are you suggesting here? Well, Andrew, the reason why I came into the studio rather than doing it home, the reason why I put on this monkey suit is because I have never been more serious in my life. And I've had conversations with you and other journalists over the last few weeks. The weakest candidate against Donald Trump is Joe Biden. Any other Democrat would run further ahead. Any other Democrat would be beating Donald Trump right now. Joe Biden is falling further and further behind. Inflation is dropping as an issue. Crime is falling in most places, although there have been some issues over the last few weeks. Yes, immigration is a problem, but the quality of life is improving, and yet his numbers are getting worse. Trump has been indicted 91 times, and yet his numbers are going up. Why? Because the public is coming to a conclusion that Joe Biden cannot take this country forward. And he seems to be ignoring that conclusion, is determined to run. And frankly, for you viewers right there, if this continues, Donald Trump is the next president. Frank Luntz, we will save the tape. We always appreciate your perspective. It gives uh, a lot of the audience a lot to think about this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's the pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave a review. It really helps out the show. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com.